This episode is sponsored by QGive, a comprehensive fundraising platform trusted by over 20,000 fundraisers. Through online giving and event registration forms, text fundraising, peer-to-peer campaigns, and auction events, QGive's tools help fundraisers like you raise more. The QGive team understands that fundraising isn't always an easy job. To help, they recently surveyed fundraising professionals and donors to create a soon-to-be-released report, Building a Sustainable Future, a Guide to Healthy Fundraising. This report explores how the economy, staffing issues, declining donor numbers, and more have impacted nonprofit teams. To learn how you can build more sustainable fundraising revenue and advocate for data-backed change, head to jcsocialmarketing.com slash qgive, that's jcsocialmarketing.com slash qgiv, to be notified when the report is released and to receive your free copy. Thank you, and let's get to the episode. Hello, and welcome to Nonprofit Nation. I'm your host, Julia Campbell, and I'm going to sit down with nonprofit industry experts, fundraisers, marketers, and everyone in between to get real and discuss what it takes to build that movement that you've been dreaming of. I created the Nonprofit Nation podcast to share practical wisdom and strategies to help you confidently find your voice, definitively grow your audience, and effectively build your movement. If you're a nonprofit newbie or an experienced professional who's looking to get more visibility, reach more people, and create even more impact, then you're in the right place. Let's get started. Hello, nonprofit unicorns. This is Julia Campbell, and I'm here today with another episode of Nonprofit Nation. I'm really excited to be talking about something that I actually really need help with. So I'm going to be taking some notes. We know that nonprofits need their professionals to perform at peak levels, inspire others, maintain relationships with community members, and achieve goals. But we know the grueling hours, the unrealistic expectations, and the lack of operational supports lead to high burnout and churn among those working in the nonprofit world. So today we're going to talk about what nonprofit organizations can do to better support their employees and what nonprofit professionals themselves can do to maintain their own well-being, resilience, and happiness on the job. My guest is Lauren Brownstein. And Lauren helps nonprofit organizations, philanthropists, and grant makers achieve their goals through Pitch LLC, her fundraising and philanthropy consulting practice. And she's the author of Be Well, Do Good, Self-Care and Renewal for Nonprofit Professionals and Other Do-Gooders, a Barnes & Noble bestseller. So congrats on that. Lauren's raised millions of dollars for workforce development programs, museums, student support organizations, women's causes, community centers, international groups, and more. She was a certified foster parent before adopting a child from the foster care system. Lauren, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here. I'm such a follower of you and your work, and I refer people to you all the time. I want to thank you for putting so much great content out into the world, really thoughtful, high quality content. I've sent a lot of people your way to look at it. So I'm very flattered that you invited me to join you. Well, I'm really flattered. 
by those words, words of affirmation, (laughs) my love language. People know this. I love it. That really makes me happy. So tell us a little bit about you, your background, and how you started working with nonprofits. You know, like a lot of people, it seemed like I fell into it. And then at the same time, it seems like my whole life was leading up to it. I feel very similarly as well. (laughs) Yeah. So my first job out of college was with a nonprofit organization doing fundraising work. Um, And I graduated college in 92. There was a big recession. I didn't know what the heck I was going to do for a job. And I was an art history major. And as you may know, there's just tremendous job market demand for that. My mother was an art history major. Yes. Get the heck out of town. Yeah, in Toronto, U of T. (laughs) Um, Which I loved. I absolutely loved it. It actually did circle back to my, my career a little later. But long story short, I was just figuring out what I wanted to do. I had an informational interview with someone who is a youth group director when I was in high school and he was in another job and he led me to this job. So I sort of fell into this nonprofit consulting fundraising gig as my first job. And then it evolved from there. I ended up Mm -hmm. running a national teen volunteer program through that Mm -hmm. youth group that I was a part of. I went to grad school. I worked in the IT sector for a bit, but not as a programmer or anything. I worked at an association where I was there. I like to say like hippie dippy education person. And then again, shifted to full-time fundraising. So Mm -hmm. the semicolon in that whole story is when I went to grad school, I got a master's in teaching in museum education, Mm -hmm. which is very focused on experiential learning, object-based learning. So this all comes together when I got a job as a fundraiser at the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum. Because wow. when I was an art history major, I, my thesis I wrote about Holocaust memorialization. And then I had a couple other fundraising jobs and evolved my consulting practice after that. And while my consulting practice began as really focused on foundation relations, so grant writing, prospect research, developing relationships with foundations, I have <laughs> thankfully and blessedly also really integrated training into that. I do all sorts of training for all sorts of groups, online, in-person, hybrid, Mm -hmm. you name it. And I love the training because I really draw in the master's in teaching background as well. You know, if you do a training with me, you're going to be writing, you're going to be standing up, moving around, small groups, big groups, everything. So I, I... think I answered your question. I'm, I'm not 100% yes. sure, but I'm getting there. I'm <laughs> right. Yeah. And I've well, I love hearing people's stories. Years. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, you've done consulting for 19 years. That's great. I love hearing how people come to this work. And I have had guests that really were intentional in getting into fundraising or getting into marketing, but most of us either meandered along the path or had paths like yours and mine where I think if we looked at the writing on the wall, we would have seen that we were meant to be, you know, working in nonprofit work. So I, accidents yeah. or coincidences, I think, you know, things happen because they're supposed to happen that way. Exactly. So you recently published Be Well, Do Good, uh, Self-Care and Renewal for Nonprofit Professionals and Other Do-Gooders. And congrats on writing a book. I know what a huge endeavor writing and publishing a book is. Why did you write this book? 
It's a great question. I never really thought that I had a book in me. I think hmm. a, a lot of people who write books, a lot of my friends who've written books have said this has always been a goal of theirs. It's always been an aspiration. It really wasn't for me necessarily. But then I realized as I was focusing on taking better care of myself, which is something that I've always done throughout my adult life, but particularly during the pandemic, as, as a lot of us were doing, we were realizing we really needed to take care of ourselves. Mm-hmm. And I realized that over the years through my blog, primarily, I had actually created a lot of content on this subject. So I thought to myself, what if I put all of this together, but then also enhanced it with some additional thoughts about how nonprofit workers can take better care of themselves and additional thoughts about the responsibility of the sector and mm-hmm. of organizational leadership to make self-care and wellness a part of the culture and a, a little bit of conversation around why that matters. Maybe you and I could talk about that too. So yeah, I decided to embark upon this and I knew that just as my training experiences are, are very interactive, I wanted the book to be very interactive. I didn't want it to just be words on a page. So I set out to create this book with worksheets, checklists, you know, note pages, encouraging to write in the margins and scribble down your ideas so that the book would really be a personalized guidebook. So that's kind of how it came about. A lot of people ask me, how long did it take? And yes. I like to say, well, it took a few months, but it took five years. Because <laughs> a lot of it is stuff I've been thinking about and writing about for a long time. And I also have been a yoga teacher. I've studied several different kinds of meditation. I do aromatherapy. My daughter gets Reiki. I'm into acupuncture. I naturally do a lot of this, you know, hippy dippy stuff anyway. Oh, that's funny. So that's great. I think it all relates to the learnings of the book and the things that you teach. So who needs to pick up this book? Who needs to read this book? Everybody. I think there's <laughs> there's messaging for it, no matter who you are. And I intentionally said for nonprofit workers or other do-gooders, because I think it actually is also relevant to people outside of the nonprofit arena, but this is the world that I live in, work in, operate in. And I do want to say, and maybe we'll just talk about this a little bit, I hope that the message I'm putting out there is not just about what nonprofit employees could do for themselves, but what they're, the leadership of the organizations, meaning you know, senior executives, people in the C-suite, and board members can and should be doing. And I, th- mm-hmm. I think that not only do those folks need to model these practices, in other words, you know, do as I say, not just as I do, but, you know, I heard one quote from an article. There was a quote from an article where they said, Friday yoga isn't enough. You know, like it's great. Friday yoga isn't enough, right? It's great to, you know, offer, oh, we're going to, everyone can do yoga on Fridays. Now our wellness thing is checked off. It is something that should become a normative part of organizational culture and organizational operations. So I, I think one example I talk about in the book is one of the things that I think helps nonprofit workers stay fresh and stay aligned with the mission is to actually see the work. You know, sometimes you're sitting in your office or even sitting in your home office and you sort of forget, mm-hmm. oh, we are preserving that beautiful forest. We are feeding people at our soup kitchen, et cetera, et cetera. I think it's great to be able to go see that work, you know, once a week, once a month, you make a point mm-hmm. of 
serving a meal in the soup kitchen. I think it's better if the senior leadership in the organization says, okay, our whole organization is doing this site visit or this volunteer work on Mm -hmm. this day every month. We're going to have, you know, a group discussion about it every other week or, you know, whatever the case may be. But it needs to be not something that's an add-on extra that I'll do in my free time. It needs to be part of the organization. That's so important what you just said, because so often the impetus is on the fundraiser to go out in the field or talk to the program officers like with all your spare time when you're supposed to be calling donors and writing grants and getting the direct mail appeal out and the newsletter. And I think if you institutionalize it, like you just said, if you make it part of the culture of the organization, it's just like storytelling when I teach storytelling. If you have a fundraiser that is working in a complete silo and every week they have to basically pull teeth and scrape and beg for stories, it's not going to work unless there is that culture of philanthropy, that culture of storytelling around everything the organization does. So that's that's really important. And it's such an interesting example because if it is pulling teeth to get those stories, Mm -hmm. that's a canary in the coal mine. You know, that tells you that something is amiss. So I, I, I totally agree with you. So let's get to self-care. Now, self-care, I think, just like storytelling, is probably a very overused word. And I want to know, like, how how do you define self-care? I, I agree with you that it is, it's a term that's starting to lose its meaning, sort of like awesome. Which is sad because it is so important. Yes, yes. Mm-hmm. You know, when I say something is awesome, Oh, I say something's amazing. I say that all the time. Loses its meaning. (laughs) The other one that I talk about a lot is unique. I teach a lot of workshops about grant writing and I tell people flat out, do not say that your program is unique because I promise you it's not. Somebody else is doing it too, somewhere, Mm -hmm. in some way. It's a meaningless word. So on, look, on some level, I think that everyone has to define what self-care is for themselves. For Mm -hmm. me, it is about... Doing what you need to do so that you can be your best you. You can be your best colleague, partner, parent, daughter, neighbor, whatever the case may be. And I think it's doing it fearlessly and unapologetically. If you are taking a morning for yourself, say, to rest or whatever, If you're doing that, but you feel like you have to fall over yourself apologizing for it, or Mm. you have to, you know, make a lot of excuses. Well, I'm doing this because then it sort of sucks the care out of whatever it is that you're doing. Right. So I think being able to do that fearlessly and unapologetically is really important. And much like I was just describing with organizations that Friday yoga isn't enough. It can't just be an add on. I think effective self-care is something that's built into your life. So yeah, it's not just about lighting candles and having fuzzy blankets, although those things are awesome too, just to use that word. And Mm -hmm. I love those things, but to be as effective as possible, we all have to find ways to build that into our lives. And something I talk about in the book is micro steps. You know, it doesn't have to be, sometimes I think self-care practices, whether it's taking a walk or breathing or meditating or whatever, it almost becomes another to-do list. And then it 
feels mm-hmm. burdensome. And I struggle with that, I think, in part because I have so many different practices that I like. Mm-hmm. So I have to reset how I think about that and say, you know what, today I just really need a 10 minute walk out in the sunshine. And that's how I'm going to refresh myself. That is such a good point that self-care it defeats the purpose if you get stressed out, the self-care is on your to-do list and you can't do it. <laughs> right. Well, how do you handle that? Do you feel like you have things that you do and do you kind of beat yourself up if you don't do them like I do sometimes? Always, always. For me, what I have started to realize about self-care is that it really is just alone time. <laughs> so my husband oh, works yeah. at home. I work at home. Uh, I have two kids and everyone is very lovely, but Sometimes you now I love what you said about fearless, be fearless and unapologetic. I want to go down to the basement and close the door and watch TV and no one bother me. And that is my, sometimes that's what I need. You know, taking walks is great. Talking to friends, you know, I like to go to the gym, things like that. But even just something as simple as like closing the door, not working, not checking my phone, nothing on the to-do list, just kind of like zoning out, reading a book or watching TV with no one asking me, mom, where are my shoes? Where's the laundry? Where's this? What's for dinner? Blah, blah, blah. So now if you can figure out a way to do that and get (laughs) people in your life to not bug you, that's your next book. But you know, I applaud your, Oh my, it is, it is. And it's funny because this is actually, this transitions into conference season, which we're coming into conference season And some people at conferences, you know, they're very like, go, go, go. We've got to go to every happy hour, every party, every this, every that, stay until two in the morning. And for me, I really like that alone time. I need that to recharge. So I enjoy conferences. I enjoy speaking and training, like you said, you do. And at the end of the day, I need that, like, no one speak to me, turning off my phone and I just need to be away from people for a little while. So I think self-care, we really, it's like you said, we can all define it. We need to define it for ourselves. So in terms of some of the tactical strategies in the book, you have a lot of them. You have practical approaches to cultivating calm. Can you share a few with us? (laughs) I can share some of my own practical approaches to cultivating calm. Sure. Um, And I think some of them are more... Again, this is it's different for everyone. Some people respond to more somatic approaches to this. Moving your body, focusing on your breath, or even, uh, you know, my daughter, she wouldn't mind my saying, she loves coloring like those mandalas, you know. In those oh, yes, books. with like sharpened colored pencils. I love that too. Yes, she that is her thing. And it's sort of the um, physicalness of that gets her into a flow state. There's this famous author, Mihaly Csikszentmihalyi, wrote a book called Flow. And it's about that state where you, you're in the flow and you're not aware of time and space. And that, that's powerful. For some people, that's yoga. For some people, that's coloring. For, you know, whatever, fill in the blank. For some people, that's taking a walk. I also mm-hmm. think there are sort of... So for me, let me back up. There, mm-hmm. there are... I like to have a lot of tools in the toolbox, I yes. think carefully about what I really need on a given day, right? Yes. Um, so there's certain things I do based on the day and certain things I try to do every day. Based mm. on the day, I may take a meditation break in the afternoon. I may go for a 10-minute walk. I may do 10 minutes of yoga stretching. And I what I found also is that 
if I tell myself, like, can't do yoga unless it's 45 minutes, it doesn't count unless it's 45 minutes. Right. Then I let go of that. Then there are other things that I do to try to sort of reframe my thinking, like my word of the year is something. Oh, I love that. I want to talk about that. Yeah. So my word of the year, I mean, I'll do a brief one this year. It's actually two words, which is unusual. It's what if I tend to be a class half empty person, but I know that I feel better if I don't immediately go to the pessimistic place. So if there's Hmm. a challenge I have to deal with, like, oh, I don't know, paying for college because <laughs> oh my daughter was a senior in high school. Instead of like catastrophizing and letting that snowball, I remember my word of the year and I say, well, what if we do get that scholarship? What if we what do if? get more financial aid? What if this? What if that? What if the other? So just those reminders or for a long time, I had this sign that Mm -hmm. I made, and this is something else in the book. I actually put it in our bathroom, like right next to the sink. So my daughter and I would both see it. And it was, what is my purpose today? Mm. And that, again, helped helped keep me from sort of the snowball effect of everything I have to do and everything I'm responsible for and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Those things are on the list. The list is written down. It's not going to disappear. The list is there. But what really is my purpose today? Mm-hmm. And that is another example of um, kind of a reframing strategy. And I think that the more one meditates, frankly, whatever meditation modality you use, mm-hmm. the more you are able to step outside your thoughts and observe your thoughts and mm-hmm. notice if you need to say to yourself, what if? If you need to say to yourself, The other thing I'll just mention that's been life-changing for me, and I really do try to do this every day, is a gratitude practice, which is also one of my words of the year and also Mm -hmm. a worksheet in the book. I try to write every day. I don't even commit to mornings, but I try to do mornings. Three things that I'm grateful for. But rather than just saying, I'm grateful for chocolate, green juice, and my kid, like Mm -hmm. I really write about it. You know, I'm grateful for this green juice that I'm drinking right now because I just feel more energized after I have it. And I can go to Joe and the Juice and it's really fresh and that's so convenient. Somebody taught me that, that if you actually write a few sentences about it, it's more meaningful. I have to tell you, Julia, Mm -hmm. my, my gratitude practice for real, no hyperbole, hyperbole has changed my life. It really is life-changing. So I don't even remember, oh, we're talking about the micro steps. Is that what you asked me about? Yeah. Yeah. So the idea is like, you don't have to say, I'm going to jog five miles a day. Say you're going to go for a walk. You don't have to say, I'm going to do yoga for 45 minutes. Just Mm -hmm. do what you can and, and, you know, do what you need to do on a given day. And you Mm -hmm. don't have to do all the things on all the days. What's my purpose today? I love that. I had um, Jenny Blake who wrote one of my favorite books is called Free Time. And she talks in that book about asking yourself, what's your job today? Which really resonated with me because I am dealing with elderly parents. You know, I'm dealing with a mom who, you know, is now alone. Like my stepfather passed away last year, you know, children, school, school committee, husband, like all the roles and not to mention my real job that pays me, <laughs> Right. but some days it's like, okay, I have a sick kid at home and they're in a lot of pain. That's my job today. Sadly, I'm going to try to get in emails or do whatever I can, but that's my job or some days. Yeah. And so I always think about that. And I think it doesn't mean you can't do anything else. It just means what, at the end of the day, if you have accomplished 
well or as well as you can, you will feel better about. We have those to-do lists of like 10,000 things on them. And as we know, with COVID and everything else, things can get completely thrown out the window. Yeah. And I think, I mean, I've always been a person who feels like they have to be the super woman, super person and Mm -hmm. no cracks in the armor, you know, can't show any vulnerability. And one of the things, I don't like to talk about COVID silver linings because it's tragic. It's still tragic. But I Mm -hmm. will say a shift that I've seen is that people do give each other a little more grace, I think. And at least for me, and maybe this is just my turnaround, my shift, it's become more okay to show some cracks in the armor in a professional environment. Things feel less performative to me as they did before. You know, you sort of put on your professional face. And now I think, A, it's it's a little bit less of that. And B, Mm -hmm. people kind of like that. You know, Mm -hmm. I always thought I had to show that I was infallible and perfect in a work environment. But I actually think people like seeing that you're a real person and you struggle with stuff too. Do you have that experience or? Absolutely. So the way that I think about it, and this is not my saying, I'll figure out who who said it and I'll credit it in the show notes. You want to speak from your your scars and not your wounds. Mm, So if you're being vulnerable about something and you're clearly like in distress, it's going to distress other people. So it's not to say don't be honest. But if it's like an open, gaping, bleeding wound, a lot of time that makes people uncomfortable. But if it's a scar or if it's like a wound that's kind of scarring up a little bit and you can talk about it and talk about how you got through it, people definitely appreciate that. So it's such a tightrope walk, but I like to be vulnerable and transparent and people know that and I'm kind of an open book. But I agree. I think that's changed. That's definitely something that has changed for me, at least on Zoom calls, like... (laughs) I've been on Zoom calls where literally kids are swinging from the rafters and like cats are running on the keyboard and who cares? Like really who cares at the end of the day? I I've been working at home since 2010. So I, you know, it's been chaos for me for a long time. So I get it, but I do think other people are now so much more willing to forgive and like flexible in rescheduling or flexible in schedule adjustments because it's like, Oh, sorry. Like my kid's sick or someone's sick or I'm sick or, you know, not even that, just saying that I'm going through something. I've seen a lot of people just say, you know what? I'm just not up for this today. Can we reschedule? And completely fine. So you're you're right. There is, I have been seeing that too. Yeah. Yeah. That's a positive thing. And you, how you rescheduled this conversation. I had a thing for my kid at our originally scheduled time. So I appreciate you for doing that. Oh yeah. I think that happens so often and people that get snippy about rescheduling, no, they're just not my people. I also want to, can I just make one asterisk? Because for many years, I was not a person with a kid and I do not, I'm not married. I think that people without kids and single people do sometimes get the short end of the stick on this. You know, those of us are like, I have to do this for my kid. I have to do that for my kid. Well, you know what? If I really need to go for a massage, that is just as legit in a lot of cases. Yeah. And sometimes they're taking care of their parents or siblings or dogs or cats, or there's so much going on mental health crises. Yeah. There's so much going on. So that problem in our next book, we're going to solve that problem. The mental health crisis. That's a whole different topic. I did have Ian Adair on to talk about it, but I need to have him on again. So how can leaders and managers better support their teams and make these conversations, a normal part of 
sort of the workplace? That's a great question. First, I think there needs to be real clarity about why this matters. Because yes. if, if boards, for example, aren't really clear on why this matters, they are not going to make it an organizational imperative. And I, I talk about this in the book, and I've talked about it on some podcasts too, that you know, if I'm a donor to an organization, right, and that organization's staff is burning out, quitting, quiet quitting, doing a, what is it called, Minimum Effort Monday or something mm-hmm. like that, um, doesn't care anymore, is, you know, half-assing it for lack of a better word, mm-hmm. then that organization is not really being a responsible steward of my donation, right? Like they are not using that funding to its highest capacity. So if nothing else, it is responsible stewardship and good fiduciary practice in a way Mm -hmm. to take care of your staff and make sure that they are performing at whatever peak capacity looks like for them. Do you follow what I'm saying? Yes, absolutely. I think that, I think that's absolutely right. Like we have to we have to get into the fact that, yeah, peak capacity looks different for everyone, but it's our responsibility as leaders and managers and also stewards of sustainable organizations to make sure that we are, you know, operating the best that we can under whatever circumstances, hurricanes, yeah. pandemic, <laughs> yeah, whatever yes. might be occurring. Yeah. And it's just, it's irresponsible for us to, you know, have this public trust and to accept these charitable dollars if we're not... If we're setting our employees up for failure. Yep. Yes. Um, you know, and I think once you get there, then there are lots of things that board and C-suite leaders can and should be doing. For example, maybe the board shouldn't set such unrealistic expectations for the ED or for the staff. You know, maybe they shouldn't require things to be prepared right away when there's a huge organizational event coming up or there's Mm -hmm. some big project that they're already engaged with. Maybe the executive director should not be emailing people on the weekends. And even if the ED says, oh, I just send emails on the weekend, but you don't have to respond till Monday. No, no, no. If you know, you feel pressure as an employee, Mm -hmm. if you see that maybe the ED shouldn't be there throughout the night or throughout the weekends, you know, some of it is such simple, like leadership by example. And then beyond that, I think it's the whole thing of, you know, what are we going to build into our organizational calendar and our operations to help people stay aligned with the mission, to help them take care of themselves. And I also think organizations should offer a variety of options and modalities to keep their folks mentally and physically healthy. So for Mm -hmm. example, Some people would love to have Friday yoga. Some people would die before they do that at the office. Some Mm -hmm. people love to have a Friday happy hour. Some people would rather stick a fork in their eye than sit around and have chips and salsa with their colleagues when they could just be getting work done so they can get out the door and get to their families. Mm -hmm. Um, So as as challenging as it sounds, I think it just can't be a one-size-fits-all approach because one size does not fit all. Mm -hmm. So trying a lot of different things... And realizing I, I was, what's so important about what you said is that, you know, not only is it not fun for everyone to do yoga, like it's very ableist to just say right. yoga is the only wellness thing that we have to offer or even walks. Sometimes Beth Cantor wrote about this in the Happy Healthy Nonprofit and has talked a lot about this because she's a big, big proponent of walking meetings. 
And she talks about them, writes about them on her blog. She even does Facebook lives sometimes when she's on them. She's always gotten more than 10,000 steps a day. She's just a huge, huge walker. But then she started talking about how if that's the only time that you can get the ED's ear, like say the ED or whoever, the board chair is saying, oh, I'm, you know, I'm going to go on a walk for lunch. It's almost like the old boys club, like the three martini lunch, like golf. Yeah. Go, golf. Yeah. Exactly. The so there have to be other ways than, um, and it just, it goes to your point there. There have to be other ways other than just saying, let's all take a walk at four o'clock or happy hour. Think about happy hour. Think about how many people are sober. Think about how many people, you know, have struggle with substance abuse and misuse and have family members. And I was always uncomfortable with that at work because I thought it really excluded a lot of people, not to mention if you're doing it at five or six o'clock, what about those people that have to go home and feed their kids or feed their dogs? So that's fine as an option once in a while, but yes, having that mixture. And also, what do you think about like how, what would be an appropriate way to sort of ask employees for their kind of feedback or what they want? Oh, that is a good question. I don't know. Is there an inappropriate way? Like, a, you know, well, I would, th- I'd be thinking like in a group setting might be inappropriate just because if people don't want to raise their hand and say, I'm yeah. uncomfortable with this, I don't know, maybe emails. Yeah. I mean, maybe some sort of email survey. I do think there's a lot of value in two things. Number one, having everyone in the organization be able to have a voice. That doesn't mean everybody gets the decision, but everybody has a voice in helping to make the decision. And number two, I think one of the ways to sustain this at organizations, and I'm I'm putting it out there, but I haven't figured out the how. Mm-hmm. There has to be some way of measuring the ROI on this stuff, right? Like how, you know, even if it feels like a lot of work to say schedule, you know, two walks or yoga things a week and two book talks a week or, you know, whatever mm-hmm. it's going to, or two yoga things a month and two book talks a month or, you know, put together the whole calendar and survey people, it kind of can feel cumbersome. But if you can measure that employee retention grew by 30% over the mm-hmm. you know year that you did this or versus the year you didn't, then that gives you justification for investing that time and effort. I also want to mm-hmm. say as an aside, and I say this very clearly in the book, the thing that nonprofit workers really want to stay happy is more money. So let's not forget that. Okay? Right. I don't want to say that Friday yoga is an excuse for, for not paying people wages. equitably. Right. Yes. Right. And so let's pay people paying. equitably. Let's people just money. repeat yeah. that. Yeah. Oh, 100%. So that is super important. Perks, you know, I, I read so much about millennials and Gen Z don't care about money. They just want flexible schedules. Well, we want flexible schedules and we would like to be paid. You know, we would right. like to it's be paid commens- commensuratively. So, yeah. Oh, my gosh. There's so much to unpack there. But absolutely. Like, pay your people. We don't necessarily want free pizza every week. You know, take that money, pay us, put it in our 403B, whatever it is. Right. I heard this term recently that I cannot take credit for, but it's so resonant for me. And it is passion exploitation. You're passionate about this, so you shouldn't mind if you're not paid a market wage. You're passionate about this, so you shouldn't mind having to work on the weekends. You chose this, which is the most, like, gaslighty, manipulative thing to say to someone. You chose this. Yes, I get that I chose to work in a nonprofit, 
I guess I get that I chose to work in this sector, but I also need to be able to, you know, pay my rent, pay my mortgage, pay my kids tuition, you know, whatever the case may be. It's all choices, but that doesn't mean you get to exploit me. Absolutely. So my last question, I want to focus on a statement that you made in the book that says, I'm trying to be more laid back and it's making me anxious. (laughs) I read that and I fully thought I need that on a shirt. I need that on a tote bag. I need that like imprinted on my forehead. (laughs) So as a business owner and a parent, you know, how do you keep yourself centered and like, you know, how are you trying to be more laid back? What do you do for, for self-care? Look, the short answer is I'm not like, like I am anxious. And, you know, for me, part of it is just realizing I'm not like, I'm not wired to be laid back. Right. Yeah. I'm not either. Sort of Mm -hmm. like, sort of in the same way that I need to stop beating myself up for not doing 45 minutes of yoga. Every time I do yoga, Mm -hmm. maybe don't beat myself up for not being so laid back. Um, again, I try to step outside myself and observe when I'm like winding up, when I'm getting, when I'm getting anxious about something and then using various techniques to try to bring myself back down. And for me, again, the somatic stuff is really helpful. The walking, the yoga, the breathing. I just started doing this thing that I love called tapping. Uh, Oh, I've heard of that. I always thought it was, you know, a bunch of baloney, but the truth is you're activating um, acupressure points and it is, it is great. I love, love, love it. So yes, there are all these tools. There are all these, you know, little steps that I take, but the biggest thing I try to do is observe myself. And I also think that my life is set up in a totally unrealistic way anyway, how am I a solo parent and running a business and, you know, all the craziness, like it's, it's, it's already a bit of a losing battle. And then, um, you know, the pandemic just made it so much more intense. And one gift I received was just realizing, okay, some stuff's just not going to happen. And that Mm -hmm. is a journey that each one of us has to go on, on our own. And some people are just born that way. Some people just kind of flow through life and things happen and it's fine. And, They don't care if a lot of stuff doesn't go off as planned for some of us Capricorn-y folks like me. (gasps) Capricorn. I was going to ask you. I was going to ask you what your astrological sign was. Okay. That makes sense. Yeah. I'm sure they're they're Capricorns who are laid back too, but I am Capricorn-y in a lot of ways, in a lot of good ways. I'm very loyal and, you know, all those things, hardworking. Um, Did you, have you done your Enneagram? No. Tell me about that. That's a, it's just a um, personality test. Oh yeah. That's, but that's not Myers-Briggs. That's something totally different, right? Yeah. That's something totally different. I don't, okay, I don't know what it, my Myers-Briggs is. Okay. Yeah. I would just Google it. It's an Enneagram, um, yeah, you know, just, spelled like it sounds. It. I haven't done yeah. it now. Have you? Okay. Yes. I'm an Enneagram eight, <laughs> which no one should be surprised by. What does that mean? Does that mean um, like fiercely eight? loyal, fiercely, like will not shy away from a fight puts their foot in their mouth, speaks before they think, leader and ambitious, driven. Like this sounds a a lot like me. There are great things about being that way and there's some really tough things about being that way. Exactly. Never will admit they're wrong. That's another bad one about. (laughs) I know, but the thing is is you never are wrong. No, I mean, that's the upside of it. But yeah, I think (laughs) I love personality tests. I love I was thinking of doing strengths finders. I think that's interesting because I did have 
I had Kishana Palmer on the show and she was talking about strengths finders and how to build teams based on people's strengths and like Enneagrams and like their personality types and like what you can learn about people and how they actually are going to function in a team setting. So I thought, I think that's really interesting, but that's just a little bit of a tangent. Yeah. It feels a little luxurious. Like it's hard enough to find good people. I have to find good people now that fit a certain Enneagram profile, but I guess. Yeah. Well, no, just doing it with the people that you have. I don't think you should fire them if they're, you know, an Enneagram three. Yeah. But I guess knowing what the people on your team, knowing what their personality traits are and how to maximize their contributions, I guess that's the idea, right? Like you said, it's just a tool, tool in the toolbox. The next book is I'm trying to be more laid back. It's making me anxious. <laughs> Toolkits for for anxious, overambitious type A, type A business owner parents. People, right? So where can people find out about you, Lauren, and um, learn more about how to work with you? Thank you so much. Um, the best place to go that has all of my information is probably my website, which is pitchconsulting.com. That's P-I-T-C-H. I have to be very intentional. Like baseball. P. Well, no, it's P, like Pennsylvania, not mm-hmm. B. <laughs> that's, that, I didn't even think of that, but that's hilarious. I bet there yeah. is a consulting business out there called that. I, I could be a really good consultant at that too, but that's not yes. what this podcast is about. Yeah, so there's Amazing. information there about uh, you know, me and what I do, I have a blog with tons of free, hopefully interesting and helpful content. I have, there's information about the book on my website. The book is also available through Barnes and Noble's website. Mm-hmm. And I also have a membership program for smaller nonprofits, all sorts of good stuff on there and okay. get onto my uh, newsletter as well. All right. Well, thanks so much for being here today for the fantastic conversation. I hope we can meet in person at some point soon. Yes. Be I a great so. co- be we could have like a TV show where we just talk about self-care and <laughs> yes, personality tests and, and astrology. I love it. I love it. Well, thank you so much for inviting me. It's really fun and I, again, I'm so honored to be a little part of your world. Oh, thank you. All right. And thanks everyone for listening. See you next time. Well, hey there. I wanted to say thank you for tuning into my show and for listening all the way to the end. If you really enjoyed today's conversation, make sure to subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast app, and you'll get new episodes downloaded as soon as they come out. I would love if you left me a rating or a review because this tells other people that my podcast is worth listening to. And then me and my guests can reach even more earbuds and create even more impact. So that's pretty much it. I'll be back soon with a brand new episode. But until then, you can find me on Instagram at juliacampbell77. Keep changing the world, you nonprofit unicorn.